Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, turning your Bibles to the book of Joshua. As Dr. Newfeld continues his series today, The Hope of the Ages, with a message entitled, Christ the Better Joshua. Is Jesus to be compared to a military conqueror? You know, when the angels visited the shepherds, they proclaimed peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And to call Jesus the Prince of Peace, well, that's his biblical title. It comes from Isaiah 9, verse 6, the passage we often quote at Christmas. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it goes on to say that his name shall be called, among other things, Prince of Peace. You know, today I want to proclaim Jesus as the better Joshua, but no one ever proclaimed Joshua as the Prince of Peace, and that's true. And that truth will invite us to consider Jesus and Joshua afresh. At the outset, let me start by giving, you know, the most obvious similarity between Jesus and Joshua. The name Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is just a shortened version of the name Yahoshua. You know, in essence, it's the same name. And furthermore, when Yeshua is translated into Greek, you know, it's translated as Jesus. And by the time we get to English, it's translated as Jesus. But all that to say that the name Jesus and the name Joshua is exactly the same name in Hebrew. And so Jesus and Joshua share a common name. The name means Yahweh saves or the God of Israel saves. Since we also know that the Bible characters are often named with great care and also predicted the life and ministry of the person, we should see from the outset that the Bible depicts both Joshua and Jesus as great saviors. You know, again, as I've said, I'll get back to the matter of Joshua being a military man who wiped out an entire population. And why anyone with a modicum of sensitivity to the plight of persecuted people might immediately reject this possible comparison. Jesus called us to love our enemies, and Joshua utterly wiped out the enemies of Israel. How do we compare these two men? But let's start with the life of Joshua and get a sense of who this man actually was. As you know, the sixth book in our Bible is the book of Joshua. It's named after him. I also think it's quite likely that Joshua is the author of the book of Joshua. And so Joshua then is one of the prophets who gave us our Bible. But let's start at the beginning. Who is Joshua? You know, we first meet him not in the book of Joshua, but in the book of Exodus. I like to think about Joshua the way I think about Timothy in the New Testament. As Timothy was Paul's disciple, so Joshua is Moses' disciple. So let's meet him in Exodus chapter 17. Up until this point, Israel had never fought a battle. Yeah, they had seen God decimate Egypt, but in that case, they simply stood by and watched. But now they've come to a place in the wilderness, a place called Rephidim. And in verse 8, it tells us that Amalek came out and fought with Israel. Now, the reader might be tempted to think that the Amalekites, whoever they were, felt the presence of a wandering group of two million people close to their territory, saw it as a threat, and mounted up a defense against a great company of people. But that's not the case. Amalek, the founder of this people, was Esau's oldest son. And so the Amalekites were, if you will, cousins of the Israelites. And furthermore, because of that, it's highly likely that they were aware of the promise that God made to Israel, the twin brother of Esau, that God would give Israel the promised land. And for that reason, they would have known that Israel presented no threat to them. 
God had told Esau and his descendants that he would give them the land of Edom and its surroundings, and that he would give Israel the land of Canaan. And Israel at this time is on its way to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and from there to proceed straight to Canaan. But Amalek, for reasons never explained, decided to be aggressors and do great damage to Israel. You know, later on, when Moses is recounting all of Israel's trials, well, Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 18 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. See, for reasons that are never fully explained, Amalek had a hatred for Israel. And so at Exodus 18, they've come out to fight. And so knowing the attack had already started, Exodus 17 verse 9 says, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. And so this is the first mention of Joshua in our Bible. And we can see that Moses must have appointed him as a leading commander of Israel's defense forces. He is to immediately gather the best fighters, engage the attacking forces of Amalek. And for his part, Moses will climb a hill. He'll hold up the staff of God. See, the staff of God is about God's divine intervention. And the sword of Joshua is the means God has chosen to protect Israel. Now, those of you who know this story well will remember that it was a fierce and pitched battle. Whenever Moses held up the staff, Israel was winning. But whenever his arms became tired, lowered his staff, Amalek would prevail. And so Aaron and Hur go up the mountain. They hold up Moses' hands as Joshua is leading Israel's army. And Exodus 17 verse 13 says, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Is there any point in this story that we might think of Jesus? Well, at first glance, as I've said before, we might think it was a very different circumstance and a different time. But I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that Jesus is the sword of God in the hand of God. I'll come back to that theme, but at least for now, bear it in mind as we continue our study. The next time we meet Joshua is in Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment that I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. So the only one that went up the mountain with Moses was Joshua. And this time he's not called the commander of Israel's army. He's called Moses' assistant, his right-hand man. Indeed, that title gets repeated in Exodus 33, verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. See, over time... Moses had come to recognize that there was no one he could count on more than Joshua. And so it shouldn't surprise us then, when Israel moved from Mount Sinai, ready to move into the promised land, that Moses makes a decision to send 12 spies into the land. Each tribe in Israel is to have one of its own going into Canaan, there to check out the land, and then there to bring back a report as to what the land is like. And so the 12 are selected, and it shouldn't surprise us that Hoshea, or Joshua, the son of Nun, is selected from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Numbers 13 and 14 relay the tragic story. When the spies come back, they share in detail the lands flowing with milk and honey, but they also tell of the strong warriors that defend the land. 
10 of the 12 spies say that if Israel tries to go in and take the land, the entire nation will be slaughtered. And this leads to panic among the people. People are in distress. They talk of removing Moses as their leader and picking a new one, then going back to Egypt and seeing if Egypt will accept them back as slaves. Well, Numbers 14, 6-9 says, And Joshua son of Nun, and Caleb son of Jephthunah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And what's the response of Israel? Well, the response is that they would have stoned Joshua and Caleb as well had God not intervened and protected those two men. And so who is this man, this man Joshua? Well, he's a man who believes in the promises of God. He's a man of faith. He trusts God when God has spoken. He knows that God will do exactly what he has said. And furthermore, Joshua is not intimidated. You know, if the vast majority is opposed to God and then rises up to threaten him as well. I hope you're seeing that these words also describe Jesus. Like Joshua, he stands with God, even though the religious leaders of his day all declared themselves as opposed to Jesus. They were seeking to kill him, but they could not do so until the time God had designated. You know, furthermore, Joshua's humility in deferring to Moses' leadership at all times reminds us of Jesus' own words recorded in John 5:19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And Paul says in Philippians 2, that even though Jesus was fully equal to the father, yet he humbled himself and became obedient to the father unto death on the cross. So in that term, Jesus and Joshua look so much the same. Regardless of the pressure of the culture in which they lived, they made obedience to God the ultimate priority. As Christmas is upon us, my thoughts of the Holy Land are magnified. I begin to reflect upon the stories of Jesus' birth, life, sacrifice, and ultimate glorification more closely. And in so doing, my anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Israel experience grows. There we walk the paths and places that bring the stories of the Bible to life. As time draws close, we invite you to join us for this adventure, April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. The full itinerary is available online, but space is limited, and we're nearing capacity, so register soon. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash events. As we come to the end of the book of Numbers, Moses is told that he will not enter the promised land. He, He appeals to the Lord. He says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. That is, after Moses is gone, 
Moses pleads with God that such a man can be found who can be trusted to do God's will and who will lead God's people all the way home to the promised land. And then God responds, Numbers 27, 18 and 19. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. And so when the time comes, Moses dies, and the entire community of Israel mourns. Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 says, And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And with that, the book of Joshua begins. And if you think about it, Moses redeems the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, but it was Joshua, which is part two of the story. The story is the story of a man who leads the people home. He leads them to the promised land. He leads Israel into her inheritance. And as we know, Jesus plays both roles. Like Moses, he leads his people out of enslavement to our sins and the judgment to come. But like Joshua, he leads his people into the promised rest. And yet even though the promised land is the land of fulfillment of all that God had spoken to Abraham, that Canaan would become the holy land. The land belonged to the people of God. Even so, Joshua's great feat of bringing his people to the land of promise can't be the final fulfillment of all that God had promised. See, Hebrews 13 verse 14 reminds us that here we have no lasting or abiding city. But before we get there, let's turn back to the question I addressed at the, at the beginning. It's the question of whether we can really draw positive comparisons between Jesus and Joshua. So let's talk about Joshua's conquest of Canaan. Some have a great deal of difficulty, especially with verses like Joshua 10.40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left nothing remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. At least three things are important when considering Joshua's account. First, the story of Joshua's conquest of the promised land is not a call to global jihad. Rather, a careful reading of Joshua tells us that Joshua's conquest is limited to the land God had promised Abraham. The dimensions of the land are set out, and Israel is explicitly told they are not to go beyond the borders of that land. After the conquest, Israel is to build a nation that will cause all the people on earth to know the God of Israel. Now, second, the conquest under Joshua was of a limited duration. Israel was not to continue to wipe out any foreigner living in the land after Joshua. This was only to last for his time period. And third, and this is very important, the conquest of Joshua happened for a specific reason. That reason is found in Genesis 15, verse 16. God tells Abraham that he won't inherit the promised land, but that his ancestors will. And furthermore, God tells him why he won't inherit it immediately. Rather, it says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is to say, the nations that inhabited Canaan were wicked, and God was going to bring judgment on them. It's a lesson for all of us. In God's kindness, he has delayed that judgment. Time would be given for repentance in Canaan, to turn after God, to form a culture based on the principles of righteousness and justice. But there would come a time in Canaan when the patience of God would be exhausted 
In other words, what happened in Canaan was not unlike the story of the universal flood, or for that matter, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. These stories are in our Bible. They're stories that anticipate the final judgment at the end of the ages. They tell us within human history that God does bring reckoning for what we've done. That's a very short understanding of the wars of Joshua. But I've not told the story of Joshua to give a defense of the book, but to compare Jesus to Joshua or to tell the story of two commanding generals, Joshua and Jesus. Jesus, just like Joshua, believed that this land, Canaan, rightfully belonged to the children of Abraham. And furthermore, even though that was true, both Jesus and Joshua believed that if Israel continued in persistent sin, the land would be taken from Israel. It wasn't theirs forever. Joshua, as Moses' assistant, believed that when Moses threatened Israel with curses, those curses would indeed occur. You know, think about Jesus in Luke 19, 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, both Jesus and Joshua knew that the land was given by God, but that it would take faithfulness to God to remain in it. Both Jesus and Joshua battled for the land. Joshua battled to drive evil civilizations from it, and Jesus battled to drive demons from it. But in Joshua's case, he was battling for Israel that was entering it. And Jesus was battling for Israel, who was about to be banished from it. But Jesus is greater than Joshua. Jesus provided a promised land that Joshua was unable to provide. Canaan, to be sure, was a land of abundance. Moses said so in Deuteronomy 8, 7 to 10. He said, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And Joshua provided that. But here we are well served to consider what Jesus provided. Jesus provided a promised land that Joshua was unable to provide. In other words, Canaan, well, that's only a symbol. It's a foretaste of the land to be revealed. Hebrews 4, verses 8 to 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That's a mouthful, but the key is the word rest. Joshua provided rest from Egypt and the desert. The day of wilderness wanderings without a home was over. He opened the door to the promised land. But Jesus opened the door to the end of striving or attempting to earn one's final destiny through one's own good works. He opened the door to an eternal promised land through his own blood. And for that reason, Jesus is greater than Joshua. He leads us to an eternal land. So the question is, What's the relationship between this land that Joshua conquered and our eternal dwelling in heaven? For those who think about heaven as a spiritual plane with, without physicality, 
or those who think about our life now and the life to come, that they would have nothing in common? Well, think again. Remember that Jesus taught, blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth, he said. Yeah, he would lead them to a a greater land than Joshua did. It would have brooks of water, enough food to delight, a land filled with natural resources. But Jesus gave a land Joshua could not provide. His was a land where we would not grow old and die. Death and warfare and disease and misfortune will forever be banished. Gone also will be the last vestige of our rebellion against God. We will not just rule the land of Canaan. We will rule and reign over all the works of God's hands. And for this reason, Christ surely is better than Joshua. Joshua delivered on God's promises, but Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has delivered on God's greater promises. He has brought us eternal life into an eternal land. I've always loved the image of crossing the Jordan. The real drama in Joshua is when the people of Israel were standing on the banks of the Jordan. It was while the Jordan was in flood season. See, unlike today, at that time, the Jordan represented a barrier that prevented God's people from entering the promised land. Joshua led the people to the bank of the river, and then the waters parted, just as they had at the Red Sea, and in an instant, Canaan became their home. Imagine Jesus then, standing at the banks of a much greater river, the river of our own death, But as we're about to enter the river and be swept away, there stands Jesus with an uplifted hand. The river parts and we pass over. (laughs) Merry Christmas, for our great conqueror Jesus will lead us safely home. Thanks for your message today, John. You know, I think many have decided to completely disregard the old or what you refer to as the First Testament because of its violence in contrast to the love and the grace of the New Testament. Is there a problem with that? Well, first of all, I think some of us have not read our New Testament carefully enough. Uh, I love to say to people, you'll be shocked when you encounter the real Jesus who threatened people with hell on a regular basis, in which there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He told us to fear God who is able to throw both body and soul into hell. Um, That sounds quite violent to me. Um, So I I think we need to understand the violence within a context, and that's the point I've tried to make here. And uh, I've also wanted to say that it happens within God's justice. And of course, the good news of Jesus is that he comes to offer grace rather than judgment. Let's be glad. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. For many reasons, this has been a challenging year, but a year where God has once again proven himself faithful in providing for the needs of this ministry and have allowed Back to the Bible Canada to not only sustain our Bible teaching and engagement efforts, but to expand those efforts through new mediums and into new locations across Canada and in fact around the world. Your faithfulness has made this ministry possible. And our prayer is that you will continue to stand with us in support of this ministry for 2022. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's word and a trust in kingdom work. The ministry target this year is to raise $490,000 during the month of December. This is a significant goal, but a necessary one. 
So please join us in this effort by sending your year-end gift by midnight of December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.